John chapter 6, verses 58 through 71. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, the uh, call to worship this morning was so appropriate. Lord, and so appropriate for every day, especially the days in which we gather together as your people on the Lord's Day to worship and to glorify the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this morning with Moses, show us your glory. We don't want to presume that we have seen all of your glory that we need to see or that we want to see. Or that if we are believers in this room, it is because we have in a very real and tangible way seen and experienced your glory shining in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have been drawn after you by that glory that we have seen. But Father, there is more to see. Even as Moses, as he prayed that prayer, as he asked, as he made that request of you, he had already seen your glory in magnificent ways. And yet he's continuing to ask you, show me your glory. If I have found favor in your sight, then show me your glory. And Lord, we, we echo that prayer. If we have found favor in your sight, through our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray, show us your glory. Help us see this morning the glory of our God. And help us exalt your name together. And Lord, before we come to your word, we do want to take the opportunity again to thank you for your mercy and your grace that has been manifested, not only to our whole church family, but in a, in a specific way to the Matei family. And, uh, Lord, bringing Eloise, Faye, Matei, 
into this world so mercifully. Lord, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you uh, for the one who knit that little girl together in her mother's womb. And Lord, you were with her every moment of that development from conception to the moment of her birth. You set her heart beating early on. You developed her fingerprints. You formed her eyes. You allowed her nervous system to develop very early while she was still in the womb of her mother. And Lord, we thank you for that. Thank you that you set that heart beating, lungs breathing, and brain functioning, and that you brought her out, Lord. I, as a church body, we want to lift her up to you, and we want to ask that you would, from an early age, shepherd her soul unto her Savior. Please be with Nick and Holly as they embrace parenting, and as they seek to show their daughter the ways of the Lord. Give them grace to raise her in the fear and in the admonition of the Lord. And may you bless those seeds that will be sown. Lord, may they bear fruit 30, 60, and 100 fold for the glory of your name and the life of Eloise Fay. Now, Lord, in a very spiritual way, we, we ask that you would do the same with our hearts this morning. Bless the seeds that will be sown and help us see the glory of our God in the face of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I love babies. Uh, if the Lord had allowed us to have 15, 20 babies, I would have been totally fine with that. And Jamie may not have been okay with that, but... <laughs> There's nothing, nothing in my mind, it's just very few things are as precious as holding a, a baby, in, a, a newborn baby in your hands. And um, can't wait to get my hands on Eloise. So. Uh, the title for this morning, the title for the message this morning is, Did I Not Choose You? And... Um, it's, it's obvious that's coming from Jesus' statement in John 6, 70, John chapter 6, verse 70, where after the vast majority of this crowd that's been following him decides that they're going to leave, Jesus explains to this group called the Twelve why they did not depart with the rest of them. When we, get to the, when we get to that verse, I'll unpack this a little more fully, but it's very interesting that when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, do you want to go away too? The Peter, on behalf of the twelve, responds saying, no, we don't want to go away. We have, we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the verb tenses that Peter uses there seems to indicate that Peter is saying, Lord, we're not going anywhere. We have made our decision. We have discerned. We have, we have known. We have seen and discovered the truth about who you are. We're not going anywhere. And the, the tense of the verb 
makes it seem as though the action is being performed by the apostles. They have sought Christ out. They have discovered the truth. And Jesus very quickly turns to them and says, "Uh uh-uh. No, it's not because you found me that you're sticking around here. You're sticking around because I chose you. And, And we'll unpack that more next week when we get to that. I thought we were going to get to it today, but we won't. So, that was the title. That's the title for the sermon. It's coming from that verse. And, um, you know, just by, by, as a side note here, pay attention. In John 6, 70, uh, that choosing also includes Judas Iscariot. What kept Judas Iscariot from turning away from Christ at this early point in Jesus' ministry? Or at least at this midway point in his ministry. Well, it was the fact that Jesus had chose him. And he was chosen for a very specific purpose, not for salvation, but to be the means of betrayal by which salvation would be secured for the world. And uh, Jesus wasn't going to let Judas go anywhere until that purpose had been accomplished. Very sobering reality. So I, the, the title for today is, Did I Not Choose You? <clears throat> Though it may have been better to title the message for today, True and False Disciples. Because that is the focus of these closing verses in John chapter 6. It's highlighting the difference between those who are true disciples and those who are not. This is actually something that the Gospel of John is very concerned about making sure that we understand and we are confronted with this reality as the readers of this gospel. It's going to come up over and over again throughout the entire gospel of John that not everyone who professes to believe in Jesus actually is a true believer in Jesus Christ. Not everyone who claims to be a believer or even who appears ostensibly to be a follower of Christ, not everyone who appears to be a follower actually is truly a disciple of Christ in their hearts. As Jesus said in Matthew 7, you will know them by their fruits. Well, in this particular passage in John 6, Jesus tells us that we will know them by how they respond to his teaching. We will know his disciples by how they respond to his word. Now, as we've been seeing in in this chapter, Jesus is in the middle of a dialogue with a crowd of people who have been following him as his disciples. They appear to be his disciples, and then also there is thrown into the mix these religious leaders in the synagogue in Capernaum uh, that Jesus is also speaking with. And as we've noted, there are multiple movements in this conversation that Jesus is having with this crowd. There are different stages of development that appear and manifest as the conversation goes on. And as we trace that, those stages, as we move through them, we see this pattern of development. We see uh, Jesus progressively shining more and more of the light of his gospel upon this crowd And then in reaction to that, we see the crowd progressively responding with greater animosity and opposition to it. So the more light of truth Jesus shines upon them, the more they react to that truth by opposing it. That's the pattern 
that we see with the majority of the crowd here in John 6. Now, we ended last week in the middle of the third major movement that we're looking at, which is in verses 53 to 60, which is uh, Jesus confirming and the people complaining. Jesus confirming and the people complaining. Now, we saw, for example, in verse 54, in this section, Jesus begins to confirm the metaphor that he had introduced in verse 51 about the need for the people to eat his flesh and, to, and now to drink his blood if they are going to have eternal life and salvation. They were offended by that. They began uh, quarreling among themselves over and against what Jesus was teaching. And then Jesus in verse 54, rather than changing the metaphor, or verse 53, rather than changing the metaphor and using something that was more palatable to the crowd, he doubles down on that offensive metaphor and confronts them with it more forcefully. Right? He wasn't in a uh, seeker-sensitive movement, Jesus. He wasn't trying to win numbers just for the sake of numbers. He was after truth in the heart. And he would use whatever means necessary to force that truth upon those who were hearing him. Now, obviously, in context, what Jesus means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood, it's not literal. He's not saying, you got to come take a chunk of my, my body and stick it in your mouth if you're going to live, or you need to uh, gulp down a big cup of my blood if you want eternal life. That's not what Jesus is saying. It's not transubstantiationism. It's not what the Roman Catholic Church teaches about the bread and wine becoming the literal body and blood of Christ. It's not even about consubstantiationism uh, with Lutheranism, where it becomes the body and blood of Christ through faith. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not even talking about the Lord's table, even though the principles that are laid out here definitely apply at the Lord's table. Right? When we come to the table, we do want to be feeding upon the Lord. We want to be nourishing our souls with the truth of Christ. But what does it mean to do that? Well, that's where comparing, for example, verse 54 with verse 40 makes very clear to us that to eat his flesh and to drink his blood is not speaking of a literal act of, of cannibalism. It's speaking about an act of faith. When you compare the language, the language is almost identical between verse 40 and verse 54. The only difference is, uh, rather than eating flesh and drinking blood, in verse 40, Jesus says, He who sees the Son and believes will have eternal life. And that explains to us what Jesus means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And you remember that word that Jesus uses? He changes to a different word for eat in this section. It's not just the normal word for eating. It's actually a word that's much stronger than that, and it's communicating to us the need to consume him if we would have eternal life through him. So to eat and to feed on him is being pictured with the word that means to consume him. Not to pick and choose what you want to receive from Jesus and what you don't want to receive from Jesus. Nope. Nope. You consume the feast that Jesus has set before you or you don't get any of it. Right? You don't take a little bit here, a little bit there. You actually, if you want salvation, you must come to Jesus and you must devour Him and you must devour all of Him and you must continue devouring Him throughout the rest of your life. Otherwise, you have no life in you, Jesus says. That is what true faith is. 
That's what it means to believe. It means to satiate your soul with the truth about what the Son of God came from heaven to do to save sinners like us. Which is picturing, Jesus here is picturing that faith as the need for radical and total faith commitment to Jesus Christ as the one who was sent by the Father to give us life in his name. So that's what we've looked at so far in this section here in uh, John chapter 6, this third main movement that we're considering. So that's what true faith is. It is feeding upon Christ. And then in verse 60, we see how the crowd who was listening to this teaching responded to that teaching. When Jesus began confirming the need to feed their souls upon Christ and to have this radical commitment to him as his disciples, how did the crowd respond? They responded by complaining. So how does the crowd respond to what Jesus says as he doubles down on this metaphor? Well, verse 60 opens saying, Therefore, in light of this, in response to this, many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying, who can understand it? This is a hard saying, who can understand it? Now notice something here. Something has shifted in this verse in relation to uh, the subject of this verse. Who, who is the one saying this? It's no longer the Jews, right? That's what verse 41 and 52 tell us. Jesus is interacting with the Jews. Now it's, some, it's a different group of people within this crowd. Who, who is it that Jesus is dealing with in this verse? Well, it's those who are considered to be his disciples. And so the focus, John has shifted our focus away from the Jews, what we might consider to be the religious leadership in Capernaum. He has shifted our our focus off of them and onto the crowd of people who were following Jesus earlier on in this chapter. Right, the ones who crossed the lake in order to find him, who went frantically throughout Capernaum trying to, trying to find out where is this Jesus. And then they come to him asking, Lord, how did you get here? These, these people who are intrigued by his miraculous nature and seeking to find him and get more out of him. It's these people that we are now focusing on in John 6. People who, at least on the outside, appeared to be his followers. Now, in response to... Jesus' demand for total faith commitment to him. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? Now, it's better probably to translate that as, this teaching is difficult. Who is able to hear it? Or who is able to listen to it? That able part, or who can listen to it, or who is able to listen to it, that able part there is really significant. That word is going to come up again in verse 65, and I want you to just tuck it away in your mind right now and hold on to the fact that what they're saying to one another is, who has the ability to hear or to listen to this teaching? That's what they're saying to each other. They saw his teaching as difficult. It was hard. It was something they couldn't stomach. Not because it was difficult to understand what he was saying, Or that it was hard to follow his train of thought, but because it was too difficult for them to accept it. 
think F or uh, excuse me, J.C. Ryle had a, a great comment on this that I thoroughly agree with. He said, "It's not so much hard to the comprehension as it is hard to the feelings." That's what was difficult about Jesus' teaching. It's not that they couldn't logically work out or comprehend on a surface level what Jesus was saying. It was that there was this visceral reaction against what he was saying that was taking place in their hearts. In verse 61, Jesus actually describes this reaction as being offended at his teaching. They were stumbling over his teaching. The word there is skandalize. You can, you can hear in that our English word scandalize or a scandal. That's what was going on with this crowd. The more that Jesus taught them the truth of the gospel, the more they were scandalized by that truth and the more it made them stumble. Now, I, I just, can I just park on that for one second? Not that I need your permission, but I don't mean that in a rude way. Uh, There's something that you need to understand about the gospel that you claim to believe in. The gospel is a scandal to the unbelieving world. That means that the gospel is always offensive to the natural mind, and you will never be able to package the gospel or present the gospel or speak the gospel to anyone in the world in a way that does not offend the world unless you have compromised that gospel. You can't tell people the gospel better than Jesus Himself. And when Jesus is unpacking the gospel and explaining the truth about the need for how people will find their souls saved on the last day, saved from the judgment they deserve, saved from the wrath of God, delivered from their sins, reconciled to the Father, as Jesus is explaining that to this crowd of naturally thinking people, what happens to them? They're offended. They're scandalized by it. Now that tells us something that I just, I just, I'm not going to spend much longer, I'm not going to spend any longer on this, but just hold on to this truth. When the world is no longer offended by the gospel that we proclaim, then we can count on the fact that we are no longer preaching the gospel. We, we live in this time where it's as if we think we can somehow take the truths that Jesus has made known to us Himself. This faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That we can somehow take that and we can shape it and we can mold it and we can package it in such a way that when we hand it off to the unbelieving world, they're somehow not going to be offended by what we're saying. Especially in our day. How many people are capitulating on issues like the LGBTQ plus 2RX movement? I put RX in there for prescription. <laughs> you, you, what I mean, and I, I'm not trying to shame. Yeah, you know, it's, it's just, you cannot change your genetic makeup. 
It is a fact of biology. A man cannot transition to become a woman. It is impossible. And when we begin saying that out in the world, a world that has bought into this crazy worldview, this expression of insanity that God has handed them over to, when we begin speaking the truth and trying to reason with their souls and trying to come alongside people in love and say, listen, stop mutilating your body. That's not the answer to, to that struggle that you have in your soul. The answer is not hormone blockers. The answer is not emasculating yourself. The answer is in Jesus Christ. You feel that disruption in your soul and that conflict because you are not walking in step with your Creator. You're out of alignment with reality. You're not living the life that God created you to live. That's why you feel so unnatural in your own self. When we come alongside the world and we begin preaching the gospel in a way that touches tangibly upon the current issues of our day, it's going to be offensive. And you need to prepare your heart and your mind and just accept the fact that the world is not going to like you when you speak the truth in the world. Get over it. Just accept it. Quit trying to make everybody like you. You're not. You're not going to make everybody like you, and you are not going to win anybody to the gospel of Christ. The Spirit of God has to do that work. The gospel is offensive to this crowd, and, and nobody preached the gospel better than Jesus, and yet he is here offending this crowd with the gospel he's proclaiming. Now, I spent longer on that, but... It is interesting that in this verse, <clears throat> even though these people, these, these verses, these people are, are being described as those who are offended by the truth of Christ, it's interesting to me that they are called his disciples. As I've already mentioned, ostensibly, on the outside and from an outward appearance, it looked like they were Jesus' disciples. And to the eyes of everyone else around them, it appeared that they were truly following Christ. They left their homes, right? They left their jobs behind them. They, they traversed across the Sea of Galilee in desperate hope, not even with the confidence of knowing that they would find Him, but in a, in a, a hope of desperation, trying to find Him. They're seeking everywhere trying to find Jesus. To the outside, it looked as though these people were true followers of the Messiah. But, now get this, it was as the demands of the gospel were being pressed upon them that their true colors of allegiance came out. They loved following Jesus, the miracle worker. They loved following Jesus who gave them bread, provided for their needs the day before. But the moment that the demands of the gospel were forced upon them, all of a sudden the flag of where their true allegiance was began to rise up that flagpole. And it was clear 
they were no longer seen or to be viewed as his disciples. You know, I find that to be true in our own day, right? I grew up in the South. My accent does not reflect that very well, and you can thank my drill instructor in boot camp for that. First time I opened my mouth, he said, I can't understand a word you're saying, recruit. You better learn how to talk. And I was like, sir, yes, sir. <laughs> he drove that accent out of me. But growing up in the South and growing up in Tennessee, especially, just the tattered remnants of the Bible Belt, whatever's left of it. Growing up there, everybody and their mama too was a Christian. Everyone claimed to be a born-again believer, and I mean everybody. Everyone grew up going to church. Everyone could recite scripture from memory. All the kids went to Awana. They prayed the sinner's prayer. They were all baptized as confessing believers were seen as upstanding citizens. But even as a kid, I noticed that when the demands of Christ were being pressed upon them, most of the time, the people would get really offended. So, for example, they would say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I, I follow Christ. And I might say something back to them, well, have you ever actually read what Christ said in his word? Like, you know, Jesus doesn't just want your Sunday mornings, but, but he actually demands the entirety of your life. So, so he not only wants your Sunday mornings, but he also demands that you give him your Friday and your Saturday nights too. Right? So like, you can't be good Christian on Sunday if you're out partying and, and, and doing all that stuff on Friday night and Saturday, as if that's your area of life. And then Jesus has his area of life on Sunday. He's the cherry on top of your life. You're using him to get what you want. You know, saying things like, well, have you ever, have you ever read in the scriptures that Jesus says, he who does not take up his cross and die to self and follow me every day cannot be my disciple. He, he who does not lose his life in this world will lose his life in the next. Pressing upon them things like, you know, Jesus wants not only your heart of hearts, but Jesus also demands your mouth. So the way that you talk, the words that you use, you know, it describes the ungodly in Romans chapter 3 as those whose mouths are filled with cursings and bitterness. You know, so Jesus is not just here to be Lord over your heart of hearts, but he's here to be Lord over your mouth. Have you ever read that? Or, or he's Lord over your computer. He's Lord over your TV. He's Lord over your radio and what you listen to and what you watch on TV and what you take pleasure in. It matters to Jesus. Have you ever read that in the New Testament? Jesus demands everything and he won't settle for less than that. When I would press people with that kind of language, inevitably, the response back to me was, wait a second. Well, who are you to judge? 
Haven't you read the Bible? Jesus' words, judge not, lest you be judged. I respond back saying something like, well, I'm not really judging you. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. Right? Like, I'm just holding up what Jesus says, and I'm saying, you know, you say that you're a follower of Christ, but, but when I look at what Jesus told his followers to do, I don't see much correspondence between your life and Jesus' words. I'm not trying to judge you. I'm just showing you something. Very often that would be met by something like, what, you think you're better than everybody else? Or you think you got it together? Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, you, 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 you're, you're uh, holier than thou? Is that you? Well, no. No, I'm just trying to point out that you know, Jesus rebuked people for calling Him Lord, Lord, but who didn't actually do what He told them to do. <laughs> How can you call Me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? That would really offend people. Even those who were seen to be the model Christians. We'll go with that phrase. Listen, when Jesus' teachings and Jesus' demands offend a person who claims to be his disciple, what does that reveal about the true state of their soul? When you are offended at something that Jesus says in his words, so much so that you can't even listen to it anymore, what does that say about the state of your soul? I think this is probably the greatest test for determining whether someone is a true disciple of Christ or not. How do they respond or how do they react when the word of Christ presses into their lives in a practical way? When Jesus brings his demands tangibly down upon their lives and and demands that they make a decision. How do they respond to that? How do they respond when Jesus says to them, listen, from his word, not speaking audibly to us as of right now, his word is sufficient. But when Jesus says, listen, if you, don't, if you want to be my disciple, I require all of you. I require your entire life and you must feed your soul entirely upon me and nothing else that the world has to offer. Otherwise, you can't be my disciple. That is, you must let go of all the lesser joys and the lesser pleasures and the, 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 the sinful uh, desires of, of the flesh and the lust of the flesh. You must let go of all of that and leave it behind you and come cling to me and find satisfaction in me and keep coming to me if you want to have life. When those kinds of demands press practically upon a person's life, how do they respond? How do they react to them? That's going to tell you a lot about that person's heart. It's going to tell you who is actually still Lord or who is actually Lord over that person. Is it, is it still the person or has it actually become Jesus Christ? How a person responds to Christ's demands will reveal the true state of his or her soul and the truth about his or her allegiance to Christ. I laugh at you, clock. I will not be bound. 
I shall not be bound by your arms any longer. Some of, some of you just trembled in your soul like, oh. <laughs> I don't mean to just hammer, hammer, hammer this, but this is going to come up again and again in the Gospel of John. For example, in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 32, when, when Jesus is speaking to a group of people who claim to be his disciples, he says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Note the conditional statement there. If this happens, then that is true. If you abide, if you remain, if you continue in my word, not your understanding of my word or your understanding of what might be good for your soul, but if you continue, if you abide in my teaching, in what I have declared to be true, then you are my disciples. And notice what he says happens in the life of someone who is truly his disciple. What does the word of Christ accomplish within them? He says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Offend you. <laughs> no, the truth will set you free. See, for a true disciple of Christ, no matter what Christ is demanding of us, it's our joy to yield obedience to his greater wisdom and plan. Whatever it costs us, we don't mind. We will lose our homes. We'll lose our property. We'll lay our own lives down if it means that we are being obedient to our Lord Jesus Christ. It is our joy to accept the plundering of our property for the sake of Christ and His glory. Amen? Bodie Bauckham. You can't say amen. You better say ouch. Right? Jesus says his truth will not offend his people. His truth will liberate his people. And so for a true disciple, when the demands of the gospel are pressed upon them even more strongly than what they might be used to, even if they can't understand exactly what it means to work all of that out or to live it out in their lives, they're still within them. When they hear the demands of Christ coming to them through the Gospel and His Word in the, New, in the New and Old Testament, when they hear those demands coming upon them, there's this immediate response to it that they, they feel a yearning in their soul to move towards Christ no matter how difficult it might be. There's this, there's this reaction of their soul that, that is drawn after Christ no matter how difficult the path might be. Well, that's not the case for those who are not His true disciples. For those who are not His true disciples, the more the demands of the Gospel are, are brought upon them, it actually has the opposite effect. They become increasingly offended by those demands to the point where they're no longer able to stand listening to him. Which brings us to our final stage of progression with this crowd in verses uh, 61 to 66, which is Jesus explaining and the people departing. Now, starting in verse 61, the gloves really come off. Jesus does away with the metaphor and simply begins explaining what he is saying to them in a more straightforward manner than what he has done so far. 
He asked them, verse 61, does this offend you? Does my teaching make you stumble? Verse 62, well, what then? What then if you should, if you should see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, what, what does that mean? What is he getting at there? Well, remember that initially in this chapter, what was offending the Jews was that Jesus had said he came down from heaven in order to give life to the world. That's verse 41 and 42 of John 6. They were offended at the thought that he came down from heaven. Wait, he didn't come down from heaven. We know his mama and his daddy. We know where he grew up. He didn't come from heaven. They were offended by that. Well, here Jesus is, is reversing that, and he's saying, well, listen, if, if that offended you, the, the, the statement that I came from heaven in order to give life to the world, then what would you do if you saw me ascending back to where I was before? What would that do to you? Would that make you believe? It's very interesting. The word here that he uses for see is actually to, it emphasizes the observing part of, of an action. Like you are actually beholding with your own eyes the Son of Man ascending back up into heaven. And basically the point that he's making is, listen, if you didn't believe me whenever I said I came down from heaven to give you life, do you think you're going to believe me when I ascend back into heaven? Will that be enough to make you believe? If you could see it with your own eyes, would you believe? The human heart might think that that would be enough to bring us to true and saving faith. Well, if I could just see Jesus with my own eyes, if I could just watch him go up into heaven with my own eyes, then yes, I would believe that he's Lord of all. Yeah, Lord, show us a sign. Show us another sign that we might see it and believe you. Right? That's the request from these Jews. Well, in verses 63 to 65, Jesus gives three reasons why even seeing with their own eyes, seeing something as miraculous as him ascending back into heaven with their own eyes would not be enough to make them believe. That's the point that he's getting at in these verses. Why would even seeing him ascend back into heaven not be enough to make them believe? He gives three reasons. Number one in verse 63. First reason, it is the Spirit who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. That is... What is experienced in and by the flesh is not what will profit the soul. What is experienced in and by the flesh is not what is going to give life to the soul. The flesh doesn't provide any help or any assistance. It's of no use for imparting life to the soul. Only the Holy Spirit can give spiritual life. Now, as we've been learning throughout this chapter, right, seeing is not believing. What has this crowd seen Jesus do? They've seen him perform quite a miracle, feeding anywhere between 10 to 20,000 people with five loaves of, of bread the size of a Twinkie and two small fish. They had seen him do many other miracles prior to that, which is why they were following him to begin with. They had seen him do amazing things, and yet they still were not believing. And that is exactly Jesus' point. 
All the miracles in the world, no matter how profound or, or, or amazing they might be to the human eye, it's never going to be enough to bring someone to saving faith. Because the flesh profits nothing. It, it's not about what you see with your fleshly eyes. You have to be given the ability to see with spiritual eyes. No amount of miracles observed or experienced will ever be enough to cause someone to believe in Christ. No matter how great that miracle might be, even ascending into heaven, watching the Son of Man ascend back into heaven, Jesus says that's not even going to profit your soul. Something much deeper, something, something much more profound and more fundamental to your being has to, has to take place in order for you to truly believe in me. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. What's that fundamental change that has to take place? John 3, you must be born again. You must be born again if you are going to see or enter the kingdom of heaven. That wasn't made up by crazy fundamentalists back in the 50s, born-againism. That was Jesus' word. You must be born again if you're going to enter into God's kingdom. And that doesn't happen by the flesh. It doesn't happen by human will. It doesn't happen because of what you see with your fleshly eyes. It happens when the spirit of life comes into your heart and gives you spiritual life. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. So that's the first reason why even seeing him ascend into heaven wouldn't be enough to convince them and make them believe. Second reason. It's in verse 63. It's related to the first Verse 63, Jesus says, The Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, and the words which I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words that I've spoken to you, or that I am speaking, are spirit and life. That is, His words are spiritual words, and His words are life-giving words. But there's a problem right there if you think about it. Because this crowd is hearing those words, aren't they? Isn't this crowd hearing his teaching? At least with the physical ears, right? They're seeing his miracles with their physical eyes. They're hearing his teaching with physical ears. And yet, they're not experiencing his words as spiritual life-giving words. They're experiencing his words as death. They're offensive. They can't receive them. What's the difference? Well, Jesus says in this verse, coupling these two things together, his words are spiritual and his words are life-giving words, but only for those in whom the Holy Spirit is imparting spiritual life. Right? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot receive or discern the things of the Spirit of God. But we read in 1 Corinthians 2, 12, and 13, but God's elect people have received the Spirit of God. They, the Spirit of God gives them the mind of Christ so that they are able to discern the things that are freely given to them by God. Right? Because they have the Spirit within them interpreting spiritual words with spiritual realities, showing them the truth of what is made known to us in the Word. The Spirit of God does that. 
And if the Spirit of God is not within you, is not quickening your heart and enabling you to see the reality of these spiritual truths that are conveyed to us through the teaching of Christ, then you're always going to remain blind to them. God must... This is exactly what Jesus was teaching in verses 44 and 45, right? You can't come to me unless the Father draws you. You cannot come to me unless the Father is teaching you. And here we find out how that teaching takes place. It takes place by the Holy Spirit coming into our souls and enlightening our eyes to see and to understand the truth of Christ. Until that happens, you can't believe. Can I just, two things there. Really important points. When he says, the Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing, and the words which I have spoken to you are spirit and life, there are two things I want us to take away from that. Number one, no sign and no wonder is able to prevail over a sinner's heart where the word of Christ does not prevail. Where the word of Christ, the truth of the gospel, is not conquering a sinner's heart, no miracle will ever, will ever conquer that heart, except the miracle of regeneration, being born again. And number two, this is really significant, really important. The Holy Spirit does not use signs, wonders, miracles to impart new spiritual life to people. He uses the spiritual life-giving words of Christ himself. The Holy Spirit uses the teaching of Christ to quicken dead hearts and to bring sinners to new spiritual life. That's why in Romans 10, if we're going to go out preaching the gospel and see people saved, we have to go out declaring to them the truth. We have to go proclaiming the truth because Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of what? Somebody say it. The word of what? The word of God. You must be speaking the Word of God for people to be saved by the Word of God because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to save them. That's how He glorifies and magnifies Christ among us is by using the teaching of Christ to bring about new spiritual life. Anyway, all right, and then that leads us to a third point. A third reason why they wouldn't believe, even if they saw the Son of Man ascending into glory, is in verse 65. This is where Jesus punctuates with an exclamation point. The the emphasis that he's been making the whole time with this crowd. They are stumbling over his teaching and they're not hearing his teaching as living, life-giving words and spiritual words because, verse 65, Jesus says, for this reason, or therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by my Father. This is why I've said to you, no one is able, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. Now recall in verse 60, what were they asking one another? What were they saying to each other? Who can hear this teaching? Who can listen It's a a form of dunamis. Who has the power, the ability to hear it? Well, here in verse 65, Jesus is answering that very question by using the same word, a form of dunamis, saying, 
No one can. No one can hear this teaching. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to that person by the Father. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, I hope, well, that sounds like Calvinism. You would be right if that's your thinking. Jesus was a Calvinist, not because he read Calvin, but because Calvin read Jesus. <laughs> We're going to end here in, in, on this point. It's not where I wanted to end, but this is the, this is the only thing This is the only thing that enables any sinner to come to Christ. The Spirit of God enlivening the words of Christ in your soul because it has been granted to you by the Father to come to His Son. That's the only thing that prevails and conquers the rebel heart that is set against God. It's the almighty power of God through His means of redemption the truth of Christ, and what Christ has done to save sinners like us. Apart from that, not even seeing the greatest miracle with our own eyes would ever be able to make us believe. That's not where I want to end, but (laughs) let me just close with this. If you are not seeing the truth of Christ, if, if you find more resemblance, just stop packing up, don't move, Just look at me. It's okay if babies are crying. It's totally fine. I get it. Don't don't feel shameful for getting up and taking care of your baby. Um, but, But listen. If you find more resemblance in your own heart with the unbelieving crowd than you do with the disciples who come to confess their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be terrified. Because no matter how you appear on the outside, there's something internally that's not right with your soul. You might appear to everybody to be a follower of Christ, but if you get offended when Christ presses upon your life with the truth of the gospel, then you should be afraid. You should be afraid. And that fear should drive you to run to Christ. Flee to Him for refuge. Call upon His name that you might be saved. Today is the day of salvation for all who hear His voice. And if you're afraid at all that you have not yet been brought to the Messiah for salvation, then that is His voice calling you to get up and flee to Him for refuge. If you hear His voice, don't harden your heart against it. Don't rebel against that voice. Don't go out of this room and allow the devil to swoop in and steal the word that's been sown into your heart. Respond to it by going to Christ and begging for Him to fulfill all of His good will and purpose in your life. To save you by His grace. And if you find in yourself that you actually have responded to the teaching of Christ and you feel the yearning and the drawing of your soul to run after Him like like Song of Solomon, 
right? Let, let, him, let him draw me after himself. <laughs> have you seen my beloved? Well, I'm running after him. I'm going to go find him. If you have that yearning and longing for Christ in your soul, then number one, praise God because he put it there. And number two, act upon it. Go chase him down. <laughs> go run after him and discover the glories and the beauty and the joy and the pleasure of living a life of fellowship with Christ. Act upon. Act upon it. Amen. Amen. Well, let me pray. As we close there. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> Thank you for the patience of your people, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy that enables us to hear your word savingly. Help us rejoice in the God of our salvation. It is upon you that we wait all the day, Lord. We call upon your name in faith and in trust in our Lord Jesus Christ that you will hear, that you will answer, that you will do all that is good and accomplish all that concerns us, Lord. We trust in you, and we pray that as we transition to come to your table, Lord Jesus, for worship, would you prepare our hearts and minds to do so well, that we might come feeding upon the truth of Christ. And we pray for this, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.